When I was a journalist, I always enjoyed getting to talk about the what ifs. What if this happened in the game? Or what if this player was traded? You know, the kind of stuff that you see on First Take or Sports Center, for example. Well, you know, I, I think as lawyers, you have to do the same thing. If you're going to protect your client, if you're going to try to protect their interests, you have to think about what if, what are the, what are the possible consequences of this? What are the ramifications? And so I think in today's sports world, recently in, in some of these podcasts, I've been talking so much about, wow, there's so many things that could happen with COVID that I just said, you know what, let's just go ahead and talk about a lot of them in a podcast. So in this episode, I brought in Dan Lust from Goldberg Segala. He is known as Sports Law Lust on Twitter. He is what I would like to say is a sports law expert. So he's nationally known and has been a regular on radio shows around the country. He is in the New York office of Goldberg Segala and focuses mainly on general lit liability litigation, but also does sports and entertainment on the side. Before joining Goldberg Segala, Dan worked in the New York Giants Public Relations Department and also worked for Excalibur Sports as an MLB arbitration associate. So in this episode, we go through maybe 8 to 10 hypothetical situations that I brought up. And, you know, Dan and I just kind of go back and forth about what could happen if this happens once sports resumes. So now, you know, we're kind of hitting this second wave, if you want to call it, of COVID. And there's a lot of what ifs about sports resuming and maybe the NFL not totally resuming the way we thought it would or the NBA not resuming the way we thought it would. So, you know, I had a, had a great discussion with Dan and I think you all will enjoy this podcast because it's just so relevant to anything sports related going on in the world today. Again, thank you for listening to this episode of The Ruling Podcast. You can find me at Twitter at Rule0021. And also remember that this podcast is in the podcast network of The Sports Blog, a new website and networking platform that I created. So please check that out on LinkedIn or Twitter as well. And enjoy this episode of The Ruling Podcast. Yo, Dan, how did you become sports law lust, as you kind of call yourself? And how did you try to brand yourself as a sports law expert and somebody who joins a lot of these radio shows and just talks about sports law issues? Um, so first off, thanks for having me on. Uh, it has been, we'll say, a, a long process to get to this point. So uh, I guess that's your, your first point. Um, I had been on Twitter for uh, a number of years. Put sports law, retweets, likes, whatnot, um, and uh, you know I hadn't, I didn't really post uh, a lot myself, but I would obviously just read everything. Um, and then uh, one day I decided to just you know start commenting uh, a little bit more. Um, and then uh, you know o over time, and I'm happy to kind of get into specifics, but um, I started to get a little bit more engagement. Um, you know, I started to get in a handful of shows, and then I just kind of said to myself, you know, my my handle at that point. Um, was uh, it was at DLUST ESQ, which for, you know, the legal community, like we know what ESQ means, like it means an attorney, but like to say it on the radio or to like just tell it to somebody, it was just like a, a mouthful. 
And then, you know, if someone were to retweet me, uh, I just was like, uh, you know, I don't, DLSDSQ doesn't really say exactly what I do. Um, so I have to try to find a way to kind of spice it up. So, um, you know, I haven't, uh, I'm not the, uh, I don't know how many wrestling fans listen to this, but I'm not the ultimate warrior. I did not change my name. My name is still, uh, Dan Lust or Daniel Lust, as my mother says. But, uh, yeah, just for, for Twitter purposes, I thought that was a, an easier way to explain what I do. Yeah, absolutely. No. And I think you're right where, you know, the, the normal person, lay person doesn't really maybe know exactly what ESQ means. And so rebranding yourself to be that sports law lust, I think it definitely attracts a little bit of attention, but maybe yeah, go a little bit more into the details of maybe the particular things you did to draw a little bit more engagement for yourself. I mean, it's, uh, you know, at the end of the day, like I've, I've been at this, um, you know, and I know, as you know this, but I, I was the president of Fordham Sports Law Forum, uh, you know, during, during my time at Fordham Law School. Uh, you know, I'm sure like uh, yourself and, and probably your peers, I competed uh, in different law school sports competitions, be it Tulane baseball arbitration. Um, and I did all sorts of trial advocacy, but I always, you know, always have a passion for sports. So uh, really just kind of grinding, building up my network of, you know, uh, like-minded sports law, uh, you know, law students. Uh, when I was in law school, uh, you know, young attorneys, um, you know, anyone that I just we, we shared a passion. So, uh, it's, I haven't really changed what I necessarily do in terms of, you know, following every single story, but now I just, I have a network. So the stuff that I am doing, uh, tends to get a little bit more traction. So, um, you know, and, and I'm pretty, you know, anytime I, I speak to anyone looking for advice, there's no real substitute for the grind. It takes years to build up a network, years to find your voice and get confident with, you know, how you want to cover things. Uh, if you want to be funny, you want to be serious combination, um, but you know, uh, at some point, uh, hard work tends to pay off. I think the expression is, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Uh, so, you know, it's definitely a long grind, but if it's something you're passionate about, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not something that, that feels like work. And I know that's the case for me. So, you know, even though it seems like a while, you know, seven, eight years, just kind of grinding, um, in the kind of sports law networking side, uh, it, doesn't really feel like work. So that's, that's kind of, you know, uh, how everything is, has come to be on uh, this lovely uh, June of 2020 now, almost 10 years later. Well, and that's the best place to be, right? Where what you're doing doesn't necessarily feel like a job. It's just something that you really enjoy and love doing. So that is awesome to hear. And that's awesome to hear even just coming from an attorney too, because I think uh, you just kind of hear some of the horror stories with attorneys not really loving their job. And I think you really got to love it to be good at it. So, you know, with that said, how do you try to balance your legal practice with, you know, what you're doing at Goldberg Segala and some of your media and sports experience? I mean, it's, it's a tough balancing act. Uh, I, you know, the, the first part, uh, I think, is just kind of important. Like, my day job uh, at Goldberg Segala, I'm just a, you know, a civil litigator. Uh, our firm has a, a ton of sports clients. I have, you know, my handful of, of sports cases um, but nobody became, you know, no one's going to say, I want to be a sports lawyer. And then, you know, they're handed, uh, you know, 100% cases in the sports realm. But obviously, to be trusted with the highest exposure cases, you have to start somewhere and you have to show uh, that you have the chops for it. So, um, you know, what what is sports law? It's not really anything in particular. It's just the law where it intersects uh, with some type of sports client or some type of sports issue. So, uh 
you know, you could be a sports lawyer that's a labor attorney uh, or an antitrust attorney or a trademark attorney. Um, but what the bread and butter of I do is, is called civil defense. I defend civil cases. So that could be uh, either breach of contract suit, it could be uh, the negligence case like we're seeing in this COVID situation. Um, but the top, you know, what we'll call sports lawyers have to be, you know, uh, top lawyers in their field or else they're not going to get any kind of uh, traction in terms of building up cases. So for, for my work at Goldberg Segala, you know, uh, there's there's a very small slice of like sports law jobs, like that people would think about either general counsel for a team, you know, or uh, the outside counsel or, or uh, um, you defend, uh, we'll say like Antonio Brown in a criminal case. Those are very, a very niche, you know, niche type of job. So uh, you obviously have to start somewhere. So, uh, you know, there's a, my firm is very flexible, letting me do uh, a lot of stuff, writing, publishing, um, you know, going through media. So that's, that's the type of environment that I would kind of tell everyone listening to this is the best place to, to start. You don't necessarily have to be, uh, you know, working for a team or a uh, arena, uh, but at a place that's going to allow you the flexibility to pursue really whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, with that said, I want to jump into our COVID what ifs. And essentially, it's, you know, a list of maybe nine or 10 questions or hypotheticals that I've come up with that I think are maybe the most relevant to some of the issues we might see once we get back to sports in, uh, you know, kind of full force. So what I'm going to do is, you know, I'm just going to ask you kind of say, hey, here's the hypothetical. And then I want you to tell me how you would view that from a legal perspective and then some of the ramifications that could come of it. So the first one is uh, what happens if an NBA player catches COVID from another player? Uh, in terms of the, the legal liability? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, what do you think as far as a lawsuit and uh, maybe how actually effective it could be what 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 are some of the issues that we would look at if uh, a player were to file a suit like that? So I guess where we kind of have to start, um, and uh, I know, Hayes, you, you're a law student at, at Florida State. Have you taken torts yet, by any chance? Yes, yes. So I took uh, torts for the so, first semester. So uh, I, you know, I didn't really like torts when I was in law school. And that's what I ended up doing for my career. But I remember... Um, uh, you know, the main thing that we'd be taught in our torts class was duty, breach, causation, harm. You could say that in any number of ways. Um, or duty, breach, causation, damages. So when you come in this sports context about COVID, it's really a negligence lawsuit at the end of the day that, that there's any type of, if, 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 you know, if you have a cause of action, it would be grounded in negligence. So, um, you know, duty, you have a duty to not uh, harm uh, other, you know, other people around you. You have to act reasonably not to harm them. That's just kind of an understood duty. Breach is obviously not doing that and acting carelessly. Uh, then you have to prove, you know, you have to show that, that this uh, breach was the proximate cause of some type of harm. So, you know, I, I think you probably have a duty, uh, of course, to not, you know, potentially infect someone with COVID or negligently infect someone with COVID. Um, what that looks like in practice is probably as easy as, uh, you know, what we saw in the video from Rudy Gobert just touching all these mics. Uh, and then, mind you, in his, you know, post-incident comments, he said, what I did was careless. So you might have a duty and a breach, so you're halfway there. The problem is when you get to something like causation, you, at the end of the day, whoever's trying to prove this case against another uh, player, you know, absent any type of 
uh, restrictions in the CBA in terms of uh, required arbitration or anything like that uh, between players. Um, but you'd have to show that your actions, your careless actions, Rudy Gobert touching mics or whatever he was doing in the locker room, that was the proximate cause of a harm. So that's obviously going to be very difficult because players, um, you know, uh, well, we have to see what they're doing in this bubble exactly, but they're going to be doing a lot of different things. They're going to be in the hotel, uh, going to be talking to different trainers and, and whatnot. So that's difficult, number one. Um, but number two, someone makes a full recovery, as you know, as at least has been reported with certain guys, even like Rudy Gobert himself or Donovan Mitchell, both on the Utah Jazz. Um, what, right? There's no damages at the end of the day. So those are really the two hurdles you have to watch out for, causation and damages. Absolutely. And recently, you know, there's been discussions about liability waivers. You know, we know that was something that you, the UFC did. Uh, you know, even recently you were quoted in an article talking about Ohio State having some of their uh, athletes sign these liability waivers. If you were an athlete, is there any way to overcome a liability waiver if you were to sign one, usually? So, hey, hey, I can tell you, did your research? Uh, look, looking at my uh, my Twitter feed, I, I presume, maybe? A little bit, a little bit. Maybe that <laughs> or some, some LinkedIn. You know, I like to come prepared for my podcast. <laughs> um, so, all good. I mean, it's, it's a really an important question. So, um, and I guess kind of to your first point, uh, it's, it's a really interesting kind of question. So, someone at the Columbus Dispatch reached out to me and I said, you think the thing is enforceable? So, I said, well... You know, normally in the law, you look towards past precedent. If something can be enforceable or not, you look for a comparable situation. But obviously, in the law, uh, and we'll say even in sports, when have we, you know, professional athletes tried to come back from a pandemic? There was a, the uh, Spanish flu, or even, you know, college athletes. Um, there was the Spanish flu influenza in like, you know, uh, 1917, but obviously there's very little on that. And obviously, all the laws are different. Uh, it's probably, you know, the common law way back then, all, all different cases. Um, but you kind of have to ask yourself in that enforceability context, if the two sides to a waiver um, or any type of contract has equal bargaining power on each side. So the contract's not, you know, the contract, a waiver, uh, a legal document's not necessarily enforceable just because you sign it. Obviously, you know, um, Hayes, I'm sure you, you took, you know, uh, contracts as a, as a 1L or maybe you'll pick at some point. Yeah, yes, sir. But, yeah, it's, um, you have to have equal bargaining power. If someone puts a gun to your head, literally, literally a gun, and they say, sign this or I'm going to kill you. Um, obviously, the contract is not enforceable. That's just, that's called something like duress. Now, in a less extreme situation that you have more, obviously more common than that, uh, is where two sides have unequal bargaining power. And one side, even though they don't really have a real gun to their head, uh, they're kind of proverbially saying, you don't have any other option but to sign this. Uh, and that's, you know, the type of scenario that people are, are saying that we have with the NCAA and college athletes. Because, you know, Ohio State, the NCAA, these are big power players, and these athletes get paid zero dollars. You know, it's not like they can just go to a different school so easily. They have to jump through a bunch of hurdles. Um, and even then, right, can they can they even play if they go to the other school? Maybe they have a similar waiver. So those are the type of, you know, uh, again, another law school term, issue spotting. It's definitely an issue. Uh, which side is right remains to be seen. I think for um, Ohio State, at least, and we're, we're going to start to see more of these waivers across the country. I know um, SMU has one. Uh, that came out, uh, as well as uh, Indiana University. But we're going to, uh, to see what, you know, Ohio State's and these schools' arguments are going to be on the other side. So for Ohio State, uh, if you're, again, just playing devil's advocate looking at the other side, what they are essentially saying is, well, their athletes not really forced to sign this waiver because we're allowing them to keep their scholarship. So even if they, you know, if they need to sign this waiver to play football, that's one thing. 
but we're not kicking them out of school. We're still giving them a free education at a, at a point where they're not providing any benefit to the school, right? They're not playing football. They're just getting a free ride. So that's Ohio State's argument. You know, obviously you go in front of a judge, you'd make both. You see which one he, he views or he or she, the judge views as being legit. Um, that's really the debate. So there's no, there's no easy answer one way or the other, but there's definitely uh, a question, um, you know, as to whether this thing at the end of the day is going to be enforceable. But I think it's just kind of a matter of time before these waivers or whatever you want to call them, Buckeye pledges, whatever you want to name them, that they're going to be popping up definitely more schools around the country. Yeah, and do you think the the lack of bargaining power, maybe from a, the professional standpoint, so let's say the NBA, do you think it's harder for the players to argue that they uh, were maybe under duress uh, comparatively to you know college athletes, right? Like you mentioned, you know Ohio State is a is a big school, a lot of money involved, and you know these are athletes who aren't actually getting paid to play. But when you maybe flip the switch over to the NBA, you know, you've got the NBA. A uh, players association and maybe these players have a little bit more power do you think it would be harder for them to argue that kind of duress or unenforceability of such a uh, liability waiver certainly i mean these these guys are professionals um and just again something you probably picked up in contracts uh you know the younger you are sometimes you and even for this ohio state situation there's gonna be players that under 17 so they have to have their parents look at them um you know, the NAs and all professional sports, um, you know, at least the, the American uh, professional sports, there's no one that's going to be under 18 that's playing in a game. It's the way the one-and-done rules work and whatnot. Um, so the optics, these guys are professionals. Not only are they professionals, but the union is going to be negotiating these waivers on their part. So uh, you're going to be hard-pressed to make an argument that there's, uh, you know, such unequal bargaining power relative to something like in the NCAA. Could you still make the argument? Uh, sure, you could say that the owners are forcing this down our neck and we have no other option but to play. Um, you can make it. It's just not, not going to be, um, let's say, viewed as favorably as it would in the college situation. Um, and then, you know, I guess on that, do we are we going to see players sign waivers? Um, I don't think the union is going to go for it so easily. Uh, they might allow something like, a, so this, this Buckeye pledge that we've been kind of beating around the bush, it's, it, it has language that makes it read like a waiver. You know, it says, like, I acknowledge that the university can't prevent uh, me from getting COVID in all instances. But it's kind of like a hybrid waiver slash education um, because, in theory, what it says is, like, you know, obviously, you know, um, I assume that, you know, I acknowledge that the university can't protect me fully. But, you know, in other pages of this document, it says, I hereby pledge to tell the university when I have a temperature of 100.4 degrees if I come into contact with someone with COVID. So, you know, Ohio State's kind of blending this waiver with an educational, uh, and that's, you know, this, this educational aspect of it, this pledge part that's not necessarily a pure waiver. Uh, the NBA is looking like they're going to agree to that, that they're going to agree in the bubble not to do certain things, not to touch certain things, uh, not to break the bubble, or else, they, you know, they acknowledge they're going to be kicked out for, you know, some, some period of quarantine. Um, but I, I just don't see a pure, I mean, you know, at this point, you, can, you can't really rule anything out. But I don't think these unions are going to agree to pure liability waivers like you'd see, you know, like, hey, if, uh, you know, if you went on a bachelor party and you did, like, whitewater rafting or skydiving, you know, these pure liability waivers. Um, I don't see that. Um, but then again, uh, you know, we've seen that in the UFC context. Uh, the fighters had to sign that or, you know, they were given the option to sign it um, or else not fight. And then uh, on the college level, SMU, um, you know, they, they've come out with their version of a waiver that, reads a lot like a normal waiver. So 
Uh, can't, can't really rule it out at this point, but I think on the pros, we're more likely to see this kind of either uh, hybrid or, or something like a pledge. Right. Well, and initially, you know, we're looking at sports coming back without fans. But let's say, you know, once fans come back in uh, a fan attempts to claim, you know, he or she contracted COVID at a game, you know, what kind of liability waivers or whatever you want to call it, back of ticket kind of waivers do you think we could see as well? And then also, I think on top of that, you know, you mentioned causation earlier. And, you know, from my perspective, I imagine the causation would be pretty difficult to prove. Uh, you know, if a fan attempt or attempts to claim that they did contract COVID at a game. So what are your thoughts just on that generally? I mean, fans are going to have to, you know, make this decision for themselves. Um, they, uh, you know, in a different sense than players, uh, you know, could I make the argument that players are, are in some sense being pressured to sign a waiver in order to make a living? Sure. It's, it's there. I don't think it's the strongest college, but it's definitely there to, to be made. Um, now, separately, there's going to be no attorney that's going to argue that fans uh, are forced to attend games uh, in the traditional sense. Maybe someone would argue, hey, I spent so much money for these season tickets and they're not refunding them. Make some kind of crazy argument like that. But the other day, going to a game uh, is, is just an entertainment. Uh, it's not something like that you have to be able to, to make a living from. So um, obviously, uh, when it comes to waivers, it's going to be viewed as a lot more of a voluntary slash optional decision on the part of these fans. Like, you know, for example, uh, it, this is probably pretty apt. So, um, you know, one of these bachelor parties, and I, I bring it up because, I've, I've, you know, we went white murder rafting in, um, in Colorado for a friend's bachelor party. We could pick any number of, uh, you know, venue, or, you know, places to do this white water rafting. There's like a hundred of them in Denver. Um, but we picked this one in particular. We signed there, wait a minute. We looked at it, read it, we signed it. Um, baseball games, basketball games, football games, those are just any number of forms of entertainment for us. So the argument that it's voluntary is that, hey, you don't have to go to this baseball game. Uh, this is just entertainment. You can entertain yourself in any number of ways. You don't have to necessarily go to Yankee Stadium. Like you go to uh, City Field. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in New York, but I know you guys around the country have different different stadiums, different forms of entertainment. Um, so fans, if they want to watch a game, and I my Twitter feed is full of both sides of it, people that are just too scared, people that want to watch a game today, um, if you can stomach the risk, there, you know, I imagine there's going to be a waiver that's there. It's not going to be on the back of your ticket hidden. I imagine it's going to be a piece of paper that's handed out and signed. And why do I say that? Um, the limited context that we've seen fans during this pandemic, um, you know, at least the, the most recent one that I've been paying attention to is in um, you know, WWE, the wrestling company. They allowed limited fans to come. Uh, and in exchange for coming, fans had to actually sign a waiver uh, that they, you know, they couldn't sue the company if they contracted COVID. So it's not, it wasn't on the back of their ticket hidden, like a, you, you might see with like a foul ball um, or like a flying puck, um, but it was a piece of paper that was handed out. So that, uh, again, you know, you can't, you can't say it with 100% certainty, but that seems to be where sports uh, and fan, you know, uh, we'll say fan risk management is trending. Waivers that are literally handed to you, maybe, maybe it's as simple as when you're going through the security check, that's where, that's where they give it to you. Maybe they make you sign it in advance before you get your tickets from StubHub. Um, those are the things that teams, leagues, uh, really across the sports landscape are dealing with right now. Um, but this waiver conversation is really picking up a lot of steam these past couple of weeks. And just to clarify your point there, you know, the reason teams or uh, leagues are doing that, you know, handing out an actual waiver is just from a notice standpoint, right? So the fans can't 
try to argue that they weren't notified of the liability waiver, you know, on the back of a ticket? Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the general sense. Um, that's why you'd, you'd want to put it up front. You make sure that they sign it, they acknowledge it, they read it, um, you know, all that fun stuff. Uh, again, you know, just because we're at the end of this, we're trained to do in law school to argue both sides, mm-hmm. playing devil's advocate here. Could I make the argument that, like, what am I really signing that I, that's not already just obvious to everyone? Is it inherently risky for me to attend a game during a pandemic? Yeah, it is. It's, it, I, I know that. You know that. Um, I think anybody on a jury, of, you know, which is this reasonable person standard, they would all say it's inherently risky to attend uh, a game. Um, so by signing a waiver, you're acknowledging that you, uh, you know, are accepting and assuming uh, a level of risk. Um, again, playing devil's advocate, what does an acknowledgement of risk really give you that's not really uh, obvious to a reasonable person? But um, why you have it is because if you're the team's lawyer, the league's lawyer, I mean, they're paying you the big bucks. you got to be absolutely safe. Best practices is obviously to give a waiver, um, Not even, even though you might not actually need it at the end of the day. Uh, that's obviously going to be best practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, kind of moving forward, what, what happens if a player take – uh, you know, I think it's Blake Snell in the MLB saying, you know, I don't, I don't want to play because of health and safety reasons, right? I don't want to play because I'm afraid of contracting COVID. What happens if a player decides to do that? Is he able to uh, retain most of his salary potentially, or is he going to be fined? What do you think could be some of the ramifications of that? So in the in Major League Baseball, it's going to really depend. And um, it's looking similar, uh, at least in, in basketball as well. So Players are going to give, be given the option to opt out. It's not going to, you know, like this. They're not going to have a gun to their head and say you have to play no matter what. Um, but the players that are are going to be paid and receive additional uh, benefits is if they have a medical necessity, if they're declared high risk by some type of medical professional or, or medical review panel, um, that's going to be their uh, proverbial um, get out card. That's going to give them, uh, you know, a higher portion of their salary if it's baseball. Uh, additional service time. They're still kind of hammering out these final details. But if you are someone, um, and again, it's not, this isn't, this isn't just in a vacuum. There's a guy, guys like uh, Mike Trout, Garrett Cole, um, both with pregnant wives soon to be expecting. Um, and, you know, maybe those guys aren't high risk. Maybe they're not, right? I don't, I don't know anything about Mike, Mike Trout's medical history, Garrett Cole's. Um, but I know, um, you know, just because I, I have a young uh, baby at home, that COVID is, is more of an issue for infants. So, Maybe you're not high risk, but maybe, you know, you're Garrett Cole, you're Mike Trout, you already have hundreds of millions, uh, you know, hundred, maybe a hundred million in the bank. Uh, maybe you say, well, I, you know, the baseball season is going to be X amount of months. You know, <laughs> I don't know how much we're going to fit in at this point. Um, but I would be putting my family at a huge risk by playing this season. So you are not high risk, um, but you're in a situation where you would feel risky. So at least according to the last uh, we've heard from Major League Baseball, you, uh, you know, Cole, Trout, big names. They went this route, which you know remains to be seen, um, and you can't obviously assume that. But they would be treated differently uh, and not receive uh, be it their salaries or receive a, a much less portion of the salary if they happen to be uh, someone that was a high risk designation. And you know, with that said, though, somebody who doesn't fit into that exception, say they're maybe not high risk or they don't have family members who are high risk, and they just want to say like I don't feel like playing. Now they would not be able to qualify for those benefits or pay correct that's what it seems like i mean you can make kind of like uh imagine right we're still kind of getting details on it but you could probably uh appeal appeal comes some type of denial 
uh, and try to make some hardship, you know, request to, or something, something along those lines. But you can imagine the more that you open it up to players' families or, you know, uh, expecting babies, that you're going to get down a can of worms. So I imagine baseball and, and all these sports are going to try to cut off uh, that medical analysis at the particular player. Right, right. Well, in, so this is sort of a, an interesting hypothetical and one that may not actually come to fruition, but I thought it was interesting. So let's say, you know, the NBA keeps LeBron James out of, you know, the NBA finals because they expect, you know, he had a fever or are worried that he might have COVID, you know, and, and let's say the Lakers lose the finals because of that. Is there a, a route where LeBron James or a player could sue the NBA for a fair outcome, or could even a fan do something like that as a as a Lakers fan? Um, you know, uh, I guess there's probably two parts to this. So, could could a fan sue? Sure. Will a fan win, or we'll say like a better that has a, a big futures bet on the Lakers? It could sue. Um, but it's doubtful that they would win. Uh, and why do I say that? Uh, we happen to have the luxury of having some precedent in this regard. Um, the Probably the best one is Bill Belichick uh, and the Patriots getting sued a couple of years ago from Spygate. And uh, for those that don't know, that was the Jets situation where there was a Patriots staffer that was like on the field uh, videotaping the Jets signals. Um, and some fan, a New York Jets season ticket holder, sued the Patriots and Belichick and he said, this deprived me of my right to watch a fair game. And this wasn't fair. I paid for season tickets. I'm a fan. I have a right to watch a game. Um, and I have a right to watch a fair game. And something that I expected when I bought these season tickets. So, you know, it makes sense in a, in a vacuum. Um, but what the court said, uh, and it was an appellate level court, it wasn't just the trial court, that fans don't really have standing to sue. They're just not, you know, when you buy a ticket to a game, it's entertainment. You're not a party to the game. You're not the league. You're not the player. Um, so that lawsuit got tossed. Um, and now, more recently, with this Astros um, sign-stealing saga, uh, the, you know, the incident that I just kind of described, someone videotaping someone else to steal signs. Uh, hey, does that sound a lot like uh, the Astros situation? It, it does. <laughs> it sounds almost um, exactly like it. it. So, you know, smart lawyers on the, on the Astros side, they brought this case up, uh, dealing with the Patriots and Belichick, and they said, this case is exactly on point. That case got tossed. Fans have no standing to sue. Fans and betters, this, uh, and I'll break down the lawsuit, but fans and betters, neither of which has any type of actual connection to the game, so uh, they shouldn't have standing to sue either. Um, the DraftKings lawsuit was basically some DraftKings uh, betters saying that Major League Baseball didn't do a good job investigating uh, sign stealing and that baseball was aware that there was some big fraud going on. Uh, so they're alleging this big claim of collusion, um, you know, and, and fraud for, you know, uh, the Yankees, the Astros, and Major League Baseball. So that case got tossed. It's still kind of hanging around on appeal and reconsideration, but uh, initially the judge tossed it. So when we kind of ask ourselves what would happen, uh, and again, can't rule it out, but if a Lakers fan tried to sue the NBA, uh, or they tried to sue LeBron or, you know, any, anyone down that line, this would be the case uh, that would come up, probably probably both of these cases. The fans, batters, don't have standing to sue. It's, even though they might have put a great futures bet on the Lakers at the beginning of the season, whatever it was, 6-1, to 7-1, to one, um, that you assume the risk of players dropping out from injury, uh, and that's not so different than what's happening here. So uh, a long answer, but I think uh, kind of an interesting one to show how all of these cases in different sports all could blend together. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting the the standing point that you bring up. Um, you know, do you think going forward that a judge in a, obviously we can't ever assume or say exactly what judges will do going forward, but do you think there's a route to saying that a better, you know, if he's got 50 grand on the NBA finals and loses that because, you know, of some kind of unfair outcome, say a terrible call that the NBA has said blatantly was a bad call. You know, do you, do you maybe see a situation where that fan could say, you know, I do have standing, I do have an actual tangible injury here, uh, as opposed to just some kind of fantasy injury? 50,000 is a, is a very uh, specific number, Hayes. Are you, you trying to tell me something here? <laughs> you know, I, uh, I, I'm i not because I, I can't even, you know, try to pretend that I would make that kind of bet because I don't have any anywhere near that kind of money yet. <laughs> but um, but no, I just that was kind of the first number that popped in my head. So uh, I'm not sure I believe you, but let's, let's <laughs> go buy your story. For I promise I don't have a betting um, problem. I promise. Well, it's not a betting problem if you win. I'm just, uh, <laughs> I'm just okay. Um, yeah, I, I think still, even if you have a, it doesn't really matter how much money it is, or even if you got hurt as a fan, um, did they do? I wasn't law school so long ago. Did they do that uh, that Paul's graph case still? Yes, they do. I think if I'm if I'm on the same page I'm here. I'm calling you now. Do you know what Paul's is, graph is? It yeah, wasn't is on the, the assigned reading. Is it the uh, the approximate the approximate cause? The Case? That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So, uh, um, my dad is an attorney. He told me this case like before I went to law school. So I remember the day that they brought it up in tour. So I was like, well, excited. Um, <laughs> uh, there's like this crazy case, and uh, someone had, if I'm remembering, I might like mess up some of the details, but someone was on a, trying to board a train and like a really crowded train, uh, you know, years ago in like the 1920s. And, you know, uh, they were trying to get to the train and the train was about to leave. So the conductor pushed this guy to try to help him get on the train. And I guess that was common back then. I just, uh, obviously, <laughs> no one's pushing anybody during a pandemic, but you right. know, uh, <laughs> neither here nor there. So the guy pushes him and the guy, uh, the conductor pushes him and the guy with the, this man running to get to the train, he drops his suitcase and there's these fireworks that go in, that go off. And the suitcase opens, the fireworks kind of shoot across the train station. They hit like this thing uh, suspended from the sky, some beam, the beam drops and all this other stuff drops and it lands on somebody. Um, so then there was someone that was hurt by something that fell or some type of something that was caused by the fireworks. So the question was, was that person, was that injury foreseeable by the harm that was caused? Uh, you know, is, is it someone, is it foreseeable that a better could be you know harmed by, uh, this, this situation if LeBron were to sit out, definitely foreseeable. It's not. It's much closer than you know the Paul's graph case. So the, the problem still, when you would get to it at the end of the day, is standing. Like, does the NBA actually have a duty to protect you from that type of stuff, um, or is that just kind of assumption of the risk? So we've seen these cases pop up, uh, you know, for cheating scandals, uh, and you know, time and time again, courts will come back and say, yeah. It's, it's kind of tough luck. You're going to lose money, but uh, that's type of part of the assumption of the risk when you make a bet, when you know that there's a chance you could lose that bet. Uh, so, you know, just kind of an interesting way to, to look at it. Still an important question. Avikai could lose a lot of money or Hayes. Hypothetically, you losing $50,000, but yeah, you kind of had a luck there. Yeah. Well, I'm just impressed by your ability to uh, remember the facts of Paul's graph. 
because uh, that was a that was an interesting day in torts for us. We talked a lot about kind of like the theoretical, like what exactly was the issue? Was it actually foreseeability or something else? And um, but no, you you uh, said the facts really well. Yeah, it was essentially like could the uh, guy on the train have foreseen that his pushing the guy into the train would cause these fireworks that he couldn't see to explode and then hurt a woman who's 200 yards away, right? And uh, I, so I think that's a good example of just like how how far on the causation chain are we willing to go before we say like, okay, like that's enough. Like we're not going to hold you liable for something uh, that you really could not have ever foreseen. But, you know, it is interesting with the betting perspective, um, you know, I guess, could the NBA foresee that all these people could lose money on on that kind of bet, or, you know, or lose money because LeBron didn't play? Potentially, but um, like you said, you know, once you get into that lawsuit, that's just something the lawyers kind of have to look at and look at that past precedent. And, you know, that's what the, the lawyers get paid for, right? Making the creative arguments. Yeah, that's certainly it. I'm sure the NBA is factoring in uh, not just lawsuits that they could lose, um, but also the lawsuits that they could get hit with and just have to spend a lot of money defending. Mm-hmm. That's what the Astros uh, are dealing with right now. They're getting hit with lawsuits across the country from the sign stealing by fans, uh, you know, some of their fans, other fans, uh, ticket holders, betters. Um, no, no indication that any of these are actually going to stick uh, and are cases that they're worried about losing. But these are cases that, that are going to be you know, very highly uh, you know, pro- profiled in the media. You have to have the right attorneys on them. The right attorneys are going to cost money. Uh, and even defending a case, even you know, winning a case on summary judgment uh, after depositions, why not? It's, it's a ton of money. So as attorneys, you have to just be uh, you know, understanding that even though a case might win, like here's a good example. It has nothing to do with sports. Uh, I got a case the other day from a client, and – it's not a strong case. The, the person filing, like the filing this claim, is it's a really weak case. It's a weak case against our uh, our client. So, you know, the the client it was all excited, like, oh yeah, we're going to get this one dismissed, right? And I go, well, you know, they, they probably down the road, it's a, we have very favorable liability here, but that's going to involve depositions, discovery, a motion for summary judgment, conferences. So, it's good lawyering is not just winning the case, but it's managing expectations. So for the NBA's lawyers. They're probably telling him, hey, you might get some crazies uh, like Hayes who sues you for $50,000. He's not going to win, but he's going to cost us a lot of money defending it, bad PR. Um, the Astros haven't lost any of these suits, but the court of public opinion has already like convicted them of everything in the, in the courts. Um, so that's, that's really what you're working with. It's not, not necessarily winning or losing. That's so important, uh, but managing PR, managing expectations. Well, and probably managing money too, right? You know, since it costs a lot to either defend or bring forward a case? Right. Money, expectations, um, you know, all, all of the above. Yeah. Not just winning or losing. If you, if I had the call with a client and, you know, I, I learned over my career, always set the bar appropriately. You don't want to come in and say, oh, yep, I'm going to guarantee you a win. I'm going to get rid of this thing and I'm going to make you the, the happy. You know, there's no, there's no benefit that comes from creating expectations, uh, you know, unreasonably high for yourself. So you have to just understand the, the full landscape and you tell your client, again, having nothing to do with sports, this is a good case. Liability is favorable. It's still really early in the case. Um, but as, as this plays out, I really like our chances. Still, we might get some curveballs, but uh, more, more often than not, we win this case. It's just going to take a certain amount of money to get there. So 
managing expectations, managing money, all, all part of just the legal analysis, you know, separate aside from sports. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, you know, the NFL is preparing for their upcoming fall season. And, you know, something that came out yesterday that I thought was really interesting, interesting from Dr. Fauci was saying, you know, he thinks the NFL is going to have to do this bubble concept that the NBA is trying to implement, um, which I thought was kind of fascinating in a way because the NFL and NBA, they're just they're just different, right? You In the NBA, they're only taking 22 teams and you've only got, you know, 12 to 15 players on a team as opposed to the NFL, you've got 32 and, you know, at least, I guess, around 55, 60 guys on the roster and then all the staff, et cetera. So, you know, you know, Dan, talk to me a little bit about what you think could be in the works for the NFL and whether they could maybe use this bubble concept. Could it work? Where could they maybe do it? Anything like that? Yeah, definitely. Um, and, uh, you know, Fauci is a doctor. Um, that, and what I do, civil defense, and I'm sure people listening to this are, are taking some form of torts or contracts, any types of these civil cases, um, or even, you know, criminal. You're, the prosecution's going to get an expert, uh, and the defense is going to get an expert. So even if it's something like, you know, I watched this great documentary the other day, definitely recommend for uh, you personally and, you know, whoever's listening to this, this Casey Anthony documentary on, uh, on Hulu about this. this uh, she was a young mom charged with, uh, you know, being involved in the, the death of her young daughter. It was really interesting. I went through the whole case, some really big trial attorneys, um, very entertaining. Uh, the reason I bring it up, any case, especially high-profile cases, you're going to be able to find uh, one expert that says one thing, another expert that says another thing. Uh, not that either side is wrong. No one is necessarily going to be right, you know, um, objectively. But it's a matter of who the jury is going to buy, you know, buy more and, and think is more believable. So when it comes to, you know, Fauci, Fauci saying that football shouldn't be played outside of a bubble. He's saying that all sports should be in the bubble, uh, and that's the safest way to have sports. So, you know, Fauci's been pretty consistent with that. Whether you want to believe him or not is a separate issue, but he said bubbles are, are important for sports. Meanwhile, the NFL doctor, um, Dr. Sills, comes out, and he says a bubble is not practical. We don't, we're not going to proceed forward in a bubble. We're going to do all this other stuff, but we're not going to be in a bubble. So people were really kind of alarmed that the NFL was doing something unsafe, which is really not the case. Um, instead, what we're, you know, uh, I guess when it comes to liability, it's not a matter of being safe or unsafe. It's a, it's a matter of doing what's reasonable uh, to a certain point. So you go to a baseball game, hey, if you get hit in the head with a, a foul ball, uh, that's, it, it is what it is. It's not, it's not necessarily the baseball's fault because that happened. It's just something that they can't protect. I mean, we've seen these nets get brought up in baseball over the years, and, you know, to protect fans. That was because of negligence lawsuits that the team wasn't, you know, doing enough to reasonably protect fans. So when it comes to the NFL, um, they might argue, listen, a bubble is overkill. Reasonableness doesn't require a bubble. And even though, um, you know, we're seeing all of our sports domestically start, you know, getting bubbles together, you know, in basketball or hubs, as they're calling them in uh, the NHL and, and Major League Baseball, across the world, be it uh, in Germany or different states or different countries that are picking up, there are no neutral bubbles. There's uh, Maybe there's a handful, um, but there's empty stadiums that these teams are playing in. Um, and so if the NFL is saying, hey, there are going to be no fans, we're just going to have an empty stadium, we just think it's easier, that we don't have all of our players in the same hotel, we just want to be a little bit safer and play in empty stadiums. 
there's you know that's an argument that that's reasonable. They don't need to put players in a bubble, and I'm sure the NFL would argue that maybe a bubble is even less safe because you're putting all the players together uh, in one you know combined living quarters. So it's not necessarily a sign that the NFL is being crazy. Um, if anything, you know, again, you can make both arguments on, on, on each side, but to create a bubble like we're seeing with the the NBA is a tremendous amount of work, manpower, money. You know, there's like a hundred page COVID memo that the NBA just put out and they like want, you know, a panel of physicians to look at medical records of all, you know, coaches and staff that that's going to take months. And that's why basketball is going to be on hiatus for, you know, pretty close to five months because they're setting this bubble up and, you know, trying to make every nook and cranny when it comes to football, they're going to say, well, maybe we don't need to delay the season by five months by this bubble. We just have people in the stadiums. Uh, you know, playing in empty stadiums, that might be safer, it might be quicker. So uh, you can make the, again, make it the argument both ways, but just because the, you know, the NFL is not lifting to Fauci doesn't mean they've done anything that's necessarily, uh, you know, uh, unreasonable or that would automatically make them liable. They still have the chance to say that was just overkill. Yeah, I'm glad that you bring up the reasonable man uh, necessity, right? That is, is such a big thing in tort. And so, again, I, you know, I had torts in the fall, so I'm kind of just speaking off the top of my head here. But I know that, you know, sometimes you'll take in, well, a lot of the time, really, especially in medical uh, issues, you'll take in industry standards. You know, what are other people reasonably doing within the industry? What is kind of the typical thing that uh, others are, are safeguarding against? So, you know, I, like you mentioned, overseas, maybe they're not doing the bubble concept, but... For example, let's say like every other sports league in America tried to implement bubble concept, but the NFL didn't. Do you think that would be something that would be used against them in trying to argue, hey, you know, they're not being reasonable in that regard? Probably. Uh, I mean, again, you can make it both ways. So, hey, uh, are you um, have you followed anything with the UFC that's been going on? A, a little bit, but not not a lot, to be honest. So I'll make this one an easy one. Don't worry. I'm not not totally cold calling on you. Um <laughs> They, they, UFC has not been playing or not been fighting at one hub site in a bubble. Um, so without, I mean, I'll just, I'll just ask you, would, do you think it would be uh, unreasonable for the UFC fighters to be able to go back to their own homes at the end of the day? Personally, no, I don't. So Fauci is saying that that would be something that would be unreasonable. So he's saying that, you know, a bubble is a self-contained universe. Uh, so he, even though the he's not really the UFC is kind of doing contrary, they're they're allowing the fighters to go home. There's no pure bubble. Uh, they're not at least uh, yet. That he hasn't moved all the fighters to a private island, Dana White. Um, but uh, you know that doesn't mean that they're necessarily doing anything wrong. So you can make the argument both ways. If you were uh, a plaintiff suing the NFL for for a reason, um, you would say, hey, all of the major sports, the major pro pro team sports, be it baseball hockey, basketball, they're all either in bubbles or they're about to make bubbles. So this was really, um, and I, I guess by the time football comes, we'll know what baseball is going to do. Um, but you'd say, hey, these guys all had bubbles. You didn't do a bubble. Uh, that was unreasonable relative to what your peers did. And, you know, for torts, they teach you that reasonableness just depends on what's been done before, what your peers have done, what's been, you know, what does a reasonable person do in that situation? Or what is a reasonable sports league? Uh, and then the NFL would argue back, well, across the country, across the world, Team sports aren't building bubbles, um, but even domestically, you have someone like uh, the UFC uh, that's, that's not doing that. Um, so that's or even like the PGA. 
right? They're having their events. Guys are walking around. There's no bubble. They could be playing in a number of different venues. So you make the argument both ways. Um, again, then that's just to this, this larger point. You could get sued for anything. You get sued for a complete lawsuit that has no merit at all, um, but you're still going to have to go through the motions of defending it. So it's not a it's not a clear issue one way or the other in terms of you know uh, this negligence, this breach of the duty owed. Um, but it, it would probably spook uh, NFL teams and it's spooking NFL fans to know that there is an argument to be made that it's unreasonable. Not necessarily a winning argument, but a clear argument that that you and I obviously have, uh, have covered. Yeah, absolutely, and it's I mean it's fascinating and. Uh, that's kind of, I think, one of the interesting things about being a lawyer, right, is going through, like you said, having to see both sides of the issue, trying to find the argument for both sides, and then you just kind of see what happens. Um, but, you know, I know we're, we're wrapping up here, and I wanted to just get a couple of your thoughts really quickly on uh, the MLB before we wrap up. So just, you know, from your perspective, you know, the, the MLB PA has kind of, you know, thrown out there that the MLB is not negotiating in good faith right and so you know if if you're thinking about that what what do you feel like has to be shown to prove something like that that one of the sides is not negotiating in good faith and then what effect do you think there could be if the MLB were not to have a season this year uh two two loaded questions um we're getting closer wrenching closer not negotiating in good faith is uh it's a contract term you could, in the, I guess the general concept being you have an obligation to negotiate in good faith to tell, you know, the other side, uh, you know, not, not lie about your position, not lie about facts behind the scenes, um, and to try to work reasonably and in good faith to get a deal done. Now, if you have confidential information and you're just lying intentionally about what the information says or doesn't say, that could be construed as something that's bad faith. Um, and, you know, the allegation, we haven't, they haven't specifically gone out and say it, but um, someone as high as Max Scherzer with the with the um, Max Scherzer. It's so funny. Baseball is like so out of my mind now. Uh, Washington Nationals. Sorry, I, uh, I lost it for a second. I was about to say Detroit Tigers, but uh, that's that was years ago. Um, so he's he's kind of saying we don't have justification for uh, agreeing to all these further reductions because we haven't seen baseball's books. They want to say that they're going to lose more money by having uh, a season by paying us, you know, pursuant to this March 26th deal. And owners are saying, well. Because we're going to lose so much money, uh, because this, you know, how we, what we agreed to in this March 26 deal, we might as well just cancel the season. Um, but we won't cancel it if you agree to wind back that March 26 deal. So the owners, um, have made this statement, right? That they're going to lose more money by, uh, having a season with full salaries that they agreed to. So if it turns out, uh, be it in an arbitration setting that Major League Baseball lied that that wasn't the case, then when they opened up their books with this document production, that wasn't the case. Um, that's going to be a very big problem for Major League Baseball. So that's why uh, you are seeing Major League Baseball as part of this kind of settlement to get the season in. They're saying, you know, maybe you guys will waive all of your legal claims, we'll call it a day, we'll wash our hands with both, uh, and let's just go on with our business because they might be worried about something behind the scenes. 